locally and nationally and internationally that really we could have harnessed a few things like for the for the for the time of peak lockdown we were able to take everyone off the streets for example who who didn't have a home i mean yep. that was an amazing thing to do mm-hmm. and we we didn't seem to move heaven and earth to maintain that situation Hello and welcome to Rethink What Matters, the podcast dedicated to aligning the economy with the ecology and everyone for improved business performance, stronger families and a greener, cooler planet. And today I'm joined by Mark Charlton, Associate Director of Sustainable Development at De Montfort University in Leicester. And we're going to be discussing peace, justice, and strong institutions. That's SDG 16. I read that achieving this goal can help reduce inequalities, increase social cohesion, and ensure that no one gets left behind. So this sounds like an excellent uh, goal to have. Um, perhaps if you could tell us a little bit about your role there then, please, Mark. Yeah, sure. So I, I have a huge focus on STG 16, which is, as you mentioned, peace, justice and strong institutions within my role. Um, De Montfort University is the United Nations academic impact hub for uh, SDG 16. Uh, we're the only um, university in the UK that's an SDG impact hub for the UN, so it's a real so honour in a way for us mm-hmm. to to have this, and we're the only one of just seventeen in the world, which is really uh, nice. Um, we're, we're really proud of that too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my role, I uh, I, I run the hub uh, for the university, and I bring lots of young people into the conversation around the sustainable development goals. Also, uh, I try to uh, encourage researchers to think about their research in the context of sustainable development so that's broadly uh, um, my role um, for much of the week I'm also a net zero research theme director so I uh, try and stimulate new research projects that are, that are multidisciplinary around sustainable development too so uh, all keeps me busy and so just tell us a little bit more about the impact hub then being an impact hub for the United Nations so it's an ongoing dialogue, really, as we try and progress globally as part of a, a global network of universities who are working towards uh, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. But we have uh, um, a relationship with the United Nations in New York, around, and it makes us very responsive to global calls to action or um, um, getting involved with new policy and contributing to new policy ideas and and demonstrating research around this work. But it also uh, enables us to uh, learn from other universities around the world and for us to uh, give our models and and our research frameworks for other people to copy too. So it's, it's, it's almost like being part of a giant global conversation but we're right at the front of it because we've got this great relationship with the UN. Um, And could you tell us a little bit more about Net Zero Research Theme Director, what that role entails? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that we really need to curb our uh, carbon emissions 
between now and 2050, ideally now. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, we have to develop not only new technologies, but also new ways of working and new ways of behaving that will enable us to uh, reduce our carbon emissions. So uh, the global scientific consensus, so 98% of uh, scientists believe it's carbon that is causing the current uh, changes in temperatures and extreme weather events worldwide. Uh, and the university has um, put this as part of a strategy to uh, focus its research on working towards some of these global challenges and net zero is one of five research themes in the university. But very much um, my research theme uh, and um, is linked to a uh, social justice uh, research theme in the university, which, which both are really focused heavily on sustainable development. Okay, and could you give us a, like a practical example, something that we can, um, you know, we can identify with perhaps in the research that you're doing and, and how that might actually become something tangible we could all see? Okay, I've got a really nice one that people really seem to engage with is a piece of work that I'm doing with a football team called Leicester Nirvana, mm -hmm. uh, who are based in Highfields in Leicester. And they wrote to me um, a couple of years ago and said, we'd quite like to be Britain's first amateur net zero football team. And I thought this was a really exciting uh, prospect, not least uh, because it was somebody writing to me rather than me having to go and convince someone else to do a piece of research. They were actually coming to me with the idea. So I thought that was really exciting. And then when I met the club, it was a thousand young people living in Highfields, which is a really interesting part of Leicester. It has lots of um, uh, high indices in terms of deprivation. It has a uh, high um, propensity of uh, BAME, so uh, black, Asian, minority, ethnic uh, communities live in there, um, which is always interesting to work with. Uh, then also they were a football team, so I thought that was quite interesting as well. So I had lots of different ingredients that, that I wanted to get involved in and fundamentally they wanted to talk about net zero and not enough people are really latching onto this idea um, that becoming net zero and, and how we all change our lifestyles is important. So um, I've been developing work with them down at their clubhouse in uh, Hamilton in Leicester around how they change their lifestyles and how they um, how we apply new science and new developments to their uh, operations to enable them to become net zero. And what I found within this, which uh, hopefully your listeners would find uh, quite interesting, is the actual marginalisation of people living in poorer communities. They don't typically have a full say on what is happening in uh, the uh, the realm of net zero and how it would apply to their life. So currently, if I'll tell you a funny story, it's uh, was depends. It's funny. It might sound absolutely tragic to some people, but it, intriguing story nonetheless. I was working with a group of the players from Leicester Nirvana, and I said, "Well, one of the simple things you could do is start riding your bicycles to uh, football matches," and they. One of the kids looked at me and said, oh, well, we can't do that. And I, I said, well, it'd be really beneficial. You could 
you know, you'll be healthy, you won't be emitting uh, any uh, fossil fuel emissions and uh, it will help you prepare for the game and all of this. And then the, the youngster basically said, I live on floor th 13 of this block of flats. <laughs> the, the lift is inevitably out of order. My parents won't let me lock my bicycle outside, so I cannot own a bicycle. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a, Reality. Yep. that's a fair point. And then in the same breath, uh, my uh, brother-in-law called me and he said, oh, I'm thinking about upgrading my Tesla. He's like, you know, yeah. doing quite well for himself. Right. Yeah. And he said... Very short space of time, you had yeah. both ends of the, the spectrum there. Yeah, and it did make me realise that actually there are two conversations going on around net zero in the United Kingdom, well, or yep. perhaps only one, and one is really let's switch to UV vehicles or let's eat vegan food two or three days a week or go vegan full-time. But actually, if you're living in... Uh, communities outside of the mainstream or uh, certainly outside of the middle classes you uh might your family might be using a food bank for example you probably don't own a car you know it's an ambition to own a car let alone a a uv vehicle so yeah these these are things that have really uh sort of framed my research in, in recent months around how are we understanding how everybody adapts rather than how uh, people who are, uh, are in the sort of national narrative on net zero and, and climate change, even people who protest against climate change have the money, means and time to protest. You know, it, it, it sort of runs all the way through the current narrative of, of what we know about climate change. And we're, the, the net result of this is going to be that we'll develop solutions for climate change that are ineffective in certain communities if we don't start listening to different groups. And uh, I know you're very keen to talk about SDG 16, but democratic decision-making is right at the heart of SDG 16. Yes, so yes. Yeah, yeah. Got a nice little net, net zero SDG 16 crossover there. Which is... Yeah, you know, I think it can only really work for poorer communities when they benefit from it even if they want to get involved. I mean, it's a great example there with the football team because they're obviously inspired, you know, on the energy side of things anyway. The, you know, the energy needs to be cheaper if it's green energy, for example. And, uh, but anyway, that's uh, maybe a separate conversation. Yeah, so what, 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 are the, what other challenges are you seeing in trying to, um, uh, in being the Associate Director of Sustainable Development within, a, within an area that's challenged by lots of different uh, social inequalities and um, social deprivation and yeah i guess lots of lots of challenges that exist there yeah so what you will see in most cities uh, not just in the united kingdom but actually certainly in uh, westernized countries is uh, uh, groups of vulnerable people living in communities together so this uh, is um, a model that can be seen particularly throughout the US and, and the UK, but also um, in Central Europe as well. So you typically have estates uh, where people are living on low incomes with uh, typically they may be uh, of uh, former migrant communities or have high immigration. Uh, within those communities, which often means that uh, people have moved from overseas 
and they uh, were in vulnerable circumstances to start with and then they congregate in a community which also has high levels of vulnerability. Now this in itself uh, creates all kinds of challenges around education attainment uh, um, and uh, income levels and things like that. But if you put it in the climate context, these when, when we start to talk about things like adaptation and how we need to uh, prepare and make our communities more resilient, um, such communities are already facing significant challenges uh, around uh, how, they, um, how they can prosper. And if they are hit by greater climate impacts, they are going to struggle further. And that's something that's coming up in my research at the moment. I mentioned about the, uh, the young man who lived on floor 13 of a block of flats in Leicester. But unfortunately, those flats are also uh, receive um, two or three degrees uh, more in terms of temperature when it gets hotter in the summer. Ventilation is hard. Families often can't afford to put on fans for 24 hours a day when we go through hot spells. Yep. Um, the design of these flats often make it very uh, uh, hard for them to cool down at the rate uh, homes do in leafy suburbs. Yep. And again, uh, it's a, a, another demonstration of how uh, people living in, in different communities face different problems uh, in terms of our challenges uh, when, when we're heating. And this in itself is, um, again, it links to our challenges around climate but it also links to challenges of democracy often people living in these communities don't have a say with their local councils i mean the, the councils might argue they do but i would say that if you look at things like voting rates in those communities and, and uh, political engagement in those communities are typically lower due to a variety of reasons uh, linked to political knowledge or linked to the um the actual ability to take time off work to go and vote, perhaps, or or, or, or even to register to vote, things like that. The, the, there is a huge challenge that, that we are facing to, to uh, uh, bring these communities through and, and give them appropriate support as we all seek to make adequate changes to our lives to cope with changing temperatures. So they're more likely uh, to get ill, to be unwell. Yeah. Means they're more likely not to show up to work if they've got a job. Yeah. And they're more likely to end up, um, you know, in a, seeing a doctor or in a hospital. Um, so they, they uh, contribute less to society and they increase the cost on society, if you like. I mean, this is pretty obvious stuff. Yeah. Does that conversation go anywhere? The conversation? The change? No. Well, in my opinion, it doesn't because... We, we have we yet to see adequate social reform in these communities because they such communities are not high on the political agenda mm -hmm. and that that might be because the uh, those uh, in charge feel like well I'm not going to lose any votes with this particular community anyway very likely yeah you know which is a highly like likely solution it might be that nobody wants to grasp the particular nettle which will be in the short term, uh, a potentially expensive one. It might be, but uh, 
I, I would argue, a, a worthwhile investment now for a long-term yeah. pros prosperous solution. And uh, I guess it very much depends on um, you know how organised these communities can be in, to, to, in representing themselves, and oftentimes that a that's a challenge, isn't it? Because they don't they don't have these community centres, I think, or as, not as many of them as they used to. The the infrastructure of community space, and this is something that I learned recently, or uh, I learned by chance. I didn't um, working with a community group in Belgrave who. They were uh, thinking about this idea of mapping spaces in Belgrade where people got together and they they started to acknowledge like the erosion over the last 30 years of community spaces it actually started. They were saying that there were very few pubs in that area now and, and that, that how people socialized had changed like and the, the sort of traditions of, of uh, pubs, religious venues. Um, community centres, all of these things had been lost. It wasn't like necessarily one individual strategy to, to close all of these places down, but in, for a variety of uh, uh, reasons, the, the access to such places had been eroded. Even public spaces like parks, where councils have had to make dis difficult decisions in times of austerity around maintaining parks or cl just closing them off to the public to save money that 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 became prevalent you know and uh, we need in order to have a, a functioning society when we talk about governance in in the um the idea of strong institutions in sdg 16 we're really talking about how we govern ourselves locally as well as how we govern ourselves nationally and, and internationally you know so community organizing on the ground and keeping a sense of community is important and ensuring that people within those communities have a say about what is happening these this this is of utmost importance but it's something that has been eroded and it's been eroded the most in the most vulnerable communities so kind of linking back to what i was saying before that you kind of have these communities of vulnerability to start with and then things become more challenging. And things have become more challenging to them in the past two decades of, around how the government decides to spend money, for one, but also there's now a greater challenge in terms of they've got to cope with less money or, or less uh, welfare support going into those areas, but now we've got increased temperatures and impacts from extreme weather. Mm. I think um, it's important, isn't it, that we engage people in this conversation and understand their situation as much as possible. And I know when we spoke previously, we uh, brought up this idea of surveys and the way and the indexes we use to m measure satisfaction. And that uh, you know, a lot of places, a lot of countries are realizing that gross domestic product isn't probably the best measure of progress. And that there is this happiness index now, for example, New Zealand uses this happiness index to measure the happiness of its population as a measure of progress. And is whether or not we might be able to implement something like that at a local level. And if we if a survey came back from a local community that was very, very low, that would be a good tool to publicize. Look, this is very low. Um, if it was to be improved, you know, they could contribute more to society. Well, I'm always open-minded to new projects personally, so I, I will be definitely interested in pursuing this idea. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't 
quite, with the exception of surveys. I mean, as as a research community, we do surveys a lot. So that's not not any, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge challenge from that perspective. I, I'm more thinking, well, what is the survey actually asking and what are they asking the right questions and that kind of thing. That That's what I need to get to the bottom of in, in that kind of context or, or whether I would be uh, such a, an egotistical megalomaniac of a researcher that I'd want to quickly combine the happiness and the GDP as one thing and, 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 and look at it in that framework. That's not to say somebody hasn't already done it. I'd, so just what are, the, I, I don't know if we're still on justice and strong institutions, but I think it all feeds into that, doesn't it? To have justice and strong institutions, then we need to have strong communities. Yeah. Uh, because then they're needed less, and when they work, they work that much better. Um, just out of curiosity now, what is, the, what, what is the measure used within local communities of how well those communities are functioning? So in, in terms, in an SDG 16 sense, so it's really about democratic decision making at all levels. So that um, if if you look at one, if you look at it from one extreme angle, where where that would be failing, for example, in a in a, a, a rogue state or country, you could probably think of two or three, where uh, no matter how the public votes. 98% of them are going to vote for that particular leader and it's essentially a dictatorship and you can see that democracy is failing. But also you can see how things uh, um, are, when when things are devolved, particularly in, in, in well-developed countries who can do this stuff quite well, and the United Kingdom is actually one of them, where it could, you can devolve decision-making to very local levels and engage more people in in those forms of local governance and i don't necessarily mean join your local council although i you know i'm an advocate for democracy and, and councils and, and 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 politics but even at a, a community organizing level i think that the the value of the knowledge we have in our local communities is something that we've never really harnessed or whether we take it for granted i don't know but I've I've read studies before where think when social scientists have gone in to investigate a phenomenon of why something's worked well, it's actually come down to somebody on the ground in that community or a network of people working at a very low level who are just making a difference for their community. And that is such an important part of governance. It's almost like a new governance that that is uh, was a, a new name for an old idea, perhaps, that pe people who live in their communities know best about how their communities should be treated. So then, if we just bring it back to De Montfort University then, how is this translating into uh, what the students are doing there? So all of the work that we do is uh, really focused on um, educating young people. We have around 24,000 students at the university. So we're a mid-sized university in the UK. And we um, have put sustainability at the heart of our uh, new university strategy. So 
young people who come and study with us can expect to learn about sustainability and can hopefully expect to study a module containing uh, um, a focus on the SDGs and that's something that we're working really hard at to make sure that all young people get access to uh, learning about sustainability and the sustainable development goals. So that's a big piece of work. Embedding it in that way means that we can generate a lot more graduates who have a grasp of sustainable development. And so I think it's a really exciting moment for the university that, that we're going in that, that way. We also want to hang on to the best of those young people to develop new research and, and pursue PhDs in their, in their chosen fields, which, which really focus on sustainability. So, so we're really pushing this agenda of empowering young people to, to go through the process of becoming good undergraduates, then becoming good postgraduates, and then developing PhD level research and, and sticking with us. So there's a huge focus on how we teach young people and, and we know that young people are going to uh, be a big part of finding the solutions uh, to the problems that we face. And to what extent do you, does the university then work with the local community leaders, the police, healthcare, education, to join up all the dots? De Montfort University is what some people would describe as a, a modern university. So we are a former polytechnic who became a university in 1992 uh, but uh, like most universities who have been born out of the polytechnic system our work is very applied work so we have policing degrees within our university we have uh, um, maternity and nursing we provide um, staff to our local health service we provide staff to our local policing we have a, uh, well, I would say this, I'm biased because I teach one of the modules, but we have a very vibrant politics uh, um, department, which is providing the politicians of tomorrow. In fact, we had some poli uh, young politicians elected recently in the uh, most recent by-elections that we were very proud of, that we, uh, that, um, some of my colleagues have taught. But also, because we provide this um, um education for our local industry and our local authorities we are in constant negotiation with them over a variety of things not least how the courses are delivered and how the courses are taught but also um, the future direction that we will need to take those courses in and, and it's a two-way conversation and that we need to be uh, predicting to them that the direction of their um, services will also need to change in line with how the world is changing. Okay. And I know you worked with the United Nations Build Back Better framework. Yeah. Does that relate to your work today as well? It didn't. It doesn't as much as I would have liked it to, but it's, uh, um, you can't have everything your own way, as they say. I used the framework. I used the framework uh, during lockdown, and um, we were very pleased with the the results of the project, and we were able to influence local policy on how we did recover from the pandemic. I would think my uh, take on 
why I focused less on the build back better and that it seemed to be perfect in that moment when we didn't really understand what life was going to be like after the pandemic. But once the pandemic was over, things did change very quickly. And I'm sorry to say, and this is not, not a criticism of anyone locally, it just seemed to be how the world changed. The world immediately reverted back into the things it knew and loved rather than said, this is our moment to change. You know, right. there was probably a hundred things in that build back better work, not just for Leicester, but for, for locally and nationally and internationally that really we could have harnessed a few things like for the, for the, for the time of peak lockdown, we were able to take everyone off the streets, for example, who, who right. didn't have a home. I mean, yep. that was an amazing thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we, we didn't seem to move heaven and earth to maintain that situation. You know, it uh, it's really dis dissipated, you know. So it seemed like a little opportunity lost. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, changes in how we travel and how we do business seem to have reverted back into, rightly or wrongly, into uh, um, the same methods. We all can't wait to get on planes and... And, and do the things the way we always did. You know, yeah. it, now it's become rather than a thing that we've adapted and made changes that, that have benefited the environment. We more speak about it. Well, in the two years during lockdown, the emissions were low, like it was a good thing, and they're yes. not anymore. And um, so, do you think that having the SDG sixteen, so justice and strong institutions, as a as one of the sustainable development goals, as a label, if you like? Is that helping to bring a focus to, you know, to what to what that goal is trying to achieve? Yeah, and I would say my point to that is the peace, justice, and strong institutions is essentially it's it's a call to recognise and promote human rights fundamentally and, and tackle some of the issues that really uh, face society. Uh, so fundamentally, it calls for an end to war and violence. You know, I think it'd be hard to disagree with any of that. Um, end to end corruption and to to uh, uh, um, stop people committing fraud fraudulent activity, and to um, use the instruments of strong institutions like uh, democracy, like. Uh, universities, health systems and so on to give everyone the chance of an equal and fair life. I think the, these yeah. things are re fundamentally important, but also they are very valuable in how we understand other things. And uh, so, for example, given the things that I've just said, if you, if you want to uh, tackle climate change, uh, and like some of the points that I've been making earlier in this podcast, if you want to un understand and tackle climate change, you are going to have to fundamentally change the way you support people in order to deliver those changes. So you're going to have to have an element of SDG 16 being achieved in order to achieve SDG 30. And do you have any other examples or any, uh, are there any other uh, practical examples you can give us of how um, this is you know, changing life in Leicester? In, in terms of changing life in Leicester, I think Leicester's a very special place uh, to me, not only because I've lived here a long time, 
but the first time I moved here, I, I was really taken aback at the the high levels of people from different places around the world. And I think I, I haven't got the exact data in front of me, but I think we were the first uh, city in Europe to have uh, a um, minority of uh, British white people living here. I think that's the correct statistic. And uh, um, and it, it was just tipped at around 51%. So half of the city has, has migrated to Leicester in, in, in the past 40 or 50 years or, or sooner. So it makes it a very special place. It's quite interesting in terms of how communities get along. It's not, it's not like all of these different communities from Eastern Europe and from uh, mm -hmm. Asia and, and um, sorry, India and from uh, China and from uh, West Africa and so on. Everyone seems to get along and everyone seems to be behind the idea of Leicester. And I really like that. And I think so in terms of the work that I've done around SDG 16, I've sort of had a thumbs up from the people living in Leicester anyway, because they present quite a good model of okay. how, how to integrate. I'm not saying it's a perfect model. And like yeah. for the examples that I give before, there are like clusters of the city where, which are quite vulnerable. But right. in the main, people are living and they are getting along and the city is prospering. And uh, this might be a controversial thing to say, but Leicester looks a lot different to where, what it looked like when I moved here uh, the best part of 20 years ago. Right. That, that, that economically we've, we've moved forward, visually we've moved forward, culturally we've moved, moved forward. Um, and these are, in, in many ways... That's that's a really good example of SDG 16, and I've done nothing <laughs> towards that. That's the, but but the things that that I can do, they often are often warmly welcomed in Leicester, and I'm able to sort of demonstrate good models of of uh, um, practice. A little bit like when I did the Build Back Better project with the City Council, that was uh, um, of its moment. But so many people from different communities got behind it, and and we were able to enact it quite quickly. Mark, that has been a great insight into Justice and Strong Institutions, SDG 16, um, there at uh, De Montfort University, and your role there as well as the Associate Director of Sustainable Development. I really appreciate your time on this podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Mark.